This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. So this week I messed around in the kitchen a little more, uh, tried out a new recipe. Most of my cooking just starts with looking at recipes online and then looking and seeing what ingredients I have and then making some variation of it. So on this one, I started out with Hank Shaw's slow cooked deer shoulder recipe, uh, but I only had about half the ingredients, so I just kind of made it up as I went along. Uh, but starting with a bone-in shoulder from my Nevada antelope, inserted some garlic, salt, pepper, mustard, onions, and I had some chucker stock that I previously made, so I poured that in, which made it kind of a great basin-inspired meal. Two critters that love to live in dry and dusty zones coming together to make a meal. I was pretty excited about that. I should have tried to garnish it with cheatgrass or something. But anyway, cooked that at 200 for four hours, baked some sweet potatoes, Use the rest of that chucker stock, some tomatoes, mustard, and whatever seasonings I could find to make some pretty tasty sauce that I poured on top of the meat and potatoes. Had a little salad to round it out. It's a pretty dang good meal. But we got to check in with Michael because he just got back from a trip. So we're going to jump over to the fishing corner. Hey guys, welcome back to the fishing corner, episode 34. It's your boy, Mike P. We're here. It's a beautiful day here in Bozeman, Montana. And I spent the last uh, Friday through Monday spending time steelhead fishing in Idaho. This is my second year. And last year we got skunked. So we were fishing for these B-run steelhead. They're just giant behemoths of fish. Uh, they travel 500 miles from the ocean up 4,000 plus feet. They're basically mountaineers of fish. Um, it was a really cool experience. We had a lot better water conditions this year and the weather was super nice. I went with my girlfriend Cassie and we met up with our friend Nate and we had some success this year. We got some on beads, which is not necessarily my preferred method of fishing, but it is highly effective, I learned on this trip. And Cassie and I really wanted to try and swing, which is like a style spay fishing, if you've ever heard of it, swing up a couple fish. And we didn't for the first couple of days. We tried really hard and spent a lot of time doing it. But on the last morning, things came together, at least for me. Cassie hooked into two and she, yeah, heartbreakers. They, one of them broke off and then one of them just got off on the spay rod, but uh, so these B-Run steelhead are pretty magnificent creatures. Most of them are hatchery fish, which is like a whole debate for another day, but they come up through the Columbia River Basin, through the snake, into the clear water. They pass a numerous dams, and it's kind of amazing that they're still making their way up this far. They're making their way up to their spawning grounds. All these fish were pre-spawn. And all across the United States, steelhead aren't doing too great, but it was really nice to see that there is a decent run this year. Much better than we saw last year. It was just an amazing experience. That was my 31st day fishing this year. So I'm actually ahead of my last year goal of 200 days. I don't know. I haven't decided if I really want to put a goal on it this year, but right now it's looking pretty good. So this weekend it's supposed to be warm and I'm just going to get back at the trout, trout fishing. So yeah. Not going to lie, that looked pretty dang fun. I've never fished for steelhead, but I definitely feel like I need to make it happen. All right, on to some news. In a past episode, we talked about a push for renewable energy on public land. We received a lot of feedback on that episode and I've ended up learning quite a bit more. One thing that was brought to light was the role of government subsidies and the role they play in energy development, not just renewable energy, but all energy development. Even though I learned more, most of this is still way over my head, 
But the moral of the story to me anyway was that these subsidies are a huge factor in which types of energy developments occur and where it occurs. Those subsidies have a drastic impact on what is profitable in certain areas. Also, another thing that was brought to light was groups like the Nature Conservancy are being very proactive at compiling data to determine the best areas for these energy developments and that will essentially have the least amount of impact on wildlife habitat. They have compiled an insane amount of data showing the key wildlife areas and have determined spots with quote low impact development potential. These low impact areas seem to be largely centered around agriculture areas which have already been plowed or developed in some way so that makes sense but even in the quick time that I took to look at these maps uh, in the polygons that were these low impact areas, I was able to find two spots where I've killed mule deer on public land in the past within these low impact zones. So I'm not gonna lie, I'm still pretty skeptical of the development on public lands, especially when it comes to things like solar when there's so many other areas that they can be developed. But anyway, that's my opinion. Uh, still a lot to learn in that realm. The Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation did release a statement about their concern of the expedited energy development uh, from this plan from the Department of Interior, which is what we had talked about in that previous episode. They noted that the Bureau of Land Management has already permitted 41 solar projects on public land, despite many of their management plans being significantly outdated. They also noted how much work has been done in wildlife research in recent years to understand wildlife migration and these seemingly insignificant habitats that are about to be developed could very well be important migration corridors and the Bureau of Land Management has not had the time to consider this data. In Wyoming, around 200 pronghorn recently turned up dead from a rare disease outbreak. The Wyoming Game and Fish noted that the event started around mid-February. The disease is known as Mycoplasma bovis, which according to Wyoming Game and Fish appears to mostly impact pronghorn in the state and has not had significant consequences to other wildlife species. Uh, back in the winter of 2019 and 2020, another outbreak occurred near Gillette, Wyoming, where at least 460 pronghorn died. The die-off started along similar timelines in that February, mid-February timeframe and tapered off into the beginning of April. Officials also noted that to date, there has not been any risk to domestic animals or human health. Also in Wyoming, an update on winter conditions by region was recently put out by the Wyoming Game and Fish. The Green River region, which includes the famous wintering grounds of the Red Desert, has seen severe winter conditions with snow depths of one to three feet and lower elevations with many deep crusted snowdrifts. They've noted that big game animals are moving much longer distances than normal in search for food and have seen significant winter mortality and expect it to continue in the coming weeks. The Jackson and Pinedale region is experiencing above average snowpack and colder temperatures. A study that is currently being conducted on mule deer in the Wyoming range has already shown to have a greater than 50% mortality on their GPS collared fawns as compared to the average of 25% mortality. The Lander region has also seen extreme winter conditions with some reports coming out of Rollins saying that it's worse than the winter of 1949 as far as snow and cold temps go. A pronghorn study that is currently being conducted has shown that of their 33 collared does, 14 have already died and they expect that number to grow. It appears that many regions in Wyoming will be experiencing lasting effects from this winter and will undoubtedly have an impact on future season settings and tag allocations. These conditions are a reminder that nature often dictates the majority of the survival of wildlife. 
In Utah, multiple sportsmen are concerned and upset about a last-minute amendment to a bill that is currently waiting for the governor's signature. HB 469 would allow mountain lion hunting year-round and lift quotas, essentially making them a nuisance species versus a managed game species, which they have been in Utah since 1967. Many concerned individuals noted that there was no public input or discussion on the amendment, others noting that the type of management is not based in science and allowing liberal lion harvest opens the door for anti-hunting groups to try to ban lion hunting altogether. The Utah Division of Wildlife Resources were not consulted during the crafting of this bill, but they did say that they have data to support lion populations have been growing over the last 20 years or so. A Division of Wildlife Resources employee was quoted saying that he thinks these changes brought by the legislature are more social than biological, and that they already have a pretty liberal lion harvest in the state and most of their units. Currently, it is up to Utah Governor Spencer Cox whether or not this bill is signed into law or vetoed. In Washington, the Sportsman's Alliance has sued Washington Fish and Wildlife Commissioner Lorna Smith, attempting to ban her from the commission because of an ongoing violation of state law. We've touched on this in previous episodes, and Randy has recorded a podcast with Washington hunters discussing the new appointments of anti-hunting commissioners and how it's led to the cancellation of their spring black bear season, despite having healthy populations of black bears, and years of science-based management from the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. This topic has become an interesting back and forth because both sides are wanting to use quote science-based management as their argument. While Lorna Smith is using things like trophic cascades and balanced predator-prey relationships, sportsman groups and biologists note years of hunting as a management tool being a very successful method and that with societal changes the idea of letting nature fix itself is no longer viable. But now the Sportsman's Alliance is going on the offensive, attempting to use the fact that Lorna Smith serves on a separate commission outside of the Fish and Wildlife Commission, that she should be prohibited from serving on both. The group said that they plan to continue to make moves in order to combat the new appointments to the commission. For the deeper dive this week, we're talking about harvest surveys and how Western states use various methods to conduct and collect hunter harvest data. How you doing, Michael? Hey guys, how's it going? Jace, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, how are you? All right, we know how Marcus is doing. You know what, some people say that, yeah, you read some of the comments, they're like, man, you guys are falling asleep in the afternoon. No, so I'm gonna keep... I just drank a cup of coffee. Okay. <laughs> I haven't had any coffee today. <clears throat> Nice. Well, today we're going to talk about harvest surveys. Yeah. And mostly just the Western United States, the same states that Randy likes to cover in uh, all, of our m- all, all the application videos, essentially, yeah. for the sake of simplicity. Yeah, that are brought to you by Go Hunt. Brought to you by Go Hunt. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was just going to do a quick little overview of like what harvest surveys are. Yep. So like each state like will conduct harvest surveys of some sort for hunting. Um, they're usually, they're done in different ways depending on what state you're in. And it's a tool for managers to understand what's going on with wildlife populations and how much impact hunters are having. And they're usually used in conjunction with, uh, aerial surveys or whatever, whatever other surveys the agencies are using. Sometimes they use camera traps or ground surveys, but usually it's like aerial winter surveys, either helicopter or airplane, and then harvest surveys from hunter submitted data and the harvest surveys are super important especially in like areas that are you know heavily timbered where aerial surveys don't work or just what sometimes most fish and game agencies don't have the resources to do aerial surveys every winter yeah. for every species in every district so um they are an important tool yes. and i just wanted to like start yes. off explaining that and they're they're used by basically every 
Can fishing I, game can, agency. Can I yeah. get my pitch? Get in there. If you get a harvest survey and you don't fill it out, you are anti-conservation. There you go. I agree. You heard it here. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think I touched on most of my points there. Um, but so to start off, we'll and again in this discussion, I was I figured we'd simplify it and talk mostly about deer, elk, and antelope. Yep. Because each state again has different rules with how they do harvest surveys and so forth. Um, so. We'll talk about Idaho, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and Arizona. Got it. Okay, first off, let's start with, I'm going to go through and quickly list the ones where they have mandatory harvest surveys. Mandatory reporting. In other words, you get a tag, you got to report. Right. You go online or you fill out a little card. But what I've also realized researching this is that mandatory doesn't necessarily mean high compliance. Because if there's no repercussion for not submitting your data, then you have low compliance. Um, Going back to my point, people who don't comply or don't participate are (laughs) anti-conservation. Yeah, but from what I under from what I figured out, I think uh, there is kind of a repercussion in most of the mandatory states. Um, Idaho, I think, was the least uh, amount of repercussion. So, if you don't um, submit your harvest survey or harvest report, is what they call it, then you cannot purchase your license until it's filled out for the following year. So, if you go to buy your license the year after you had a tag, it won't let you until you complete your report, but then you complete it, then you can do it. And so they have like a 60 to 65% compliance rate, even with that law, okay. which I guess is pretty low for mandatory. Um, and I couldn't find all the data for every state, but Nevada is mandatory. If you don't submit, you're suspended for a year or you can pay a $50 fee to be reinstated. Suspended from applying from, from, applying from or <coughs> hunting. <coughs> and in that state, every tag is issued through a draw. Gotcha. So there's right. huge consequences of having to sit out a year, like yeah. in a state like Nevada. New Mexico, uh, your application will be rejected the following year if like you that. don't submit. I like that. Uh, Utah. <laughs> Is mandatory except for their general deer and elk. That is not mandatory reporting, okay. but everything else, most of their, like all of their uh, limited entry. limited entry stuff, and they and Utah had like one of the highest compliance rates. Uh, well, again, I didn't find all of the compliance rates for all the states, but uh, if you fail to report within thirty days of the season, you can't apply the next year in Utah. Um, and then I saw somewhere where there was another fee, but that wasn't the Utah DWR website, so I don't know if that was true. But anyway, compared to Nevada, where fifty bucks you can buy forgiveness. Yeah, essentially. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Montana. Okay, so not now we're on to non-mandatory states, and again, deer sure. and elk. Um, so Montana is non-mandatory. They run a phone survey, and it's a random sample where they shoot for about sixty percent of respondents in like high tag units or high quota units, and then. For some of the limited licenses, they'll do a hundred attempt to contact a hundred percent. Wyoming is a mail survey, as far as I could tell. I couldn't find a ton of information on Wyoming's, but I I believe it's a mail. You've probably received quite a few Wyoming, but it's a mail survey. It's also a random sample, um, similar to Montana's, I guess. Probably the closest to Montana. Colorado is. Also a random sample, but it's done primarily online. Right. And then they will follow up on phone if you don't complete the online survey. 
Um, Arizona has been mostly voluntary and it's online or mail. In Arizona, it's like the, there's a QR code on your tag and then they also send you an email and then they also send you a postcard. Yep. So if you don't complete it digitally, they're going to send you a postcard, which will still have a link where you can complete it digitally. Like if you're going to go, in my mind, Arizona is like the best example of if it's going to be non-mandatory. Right. It's do like, you, it's everywhere. You just you have see their, the survey and you're constantly yeah. reminded of it. Do you have their com- compliance rate? Is it the I highest? I couldn't find it, no. And I look for our yeah. Arizona compliance rate. And so I'd, I'd be really curious to know what their compliance rate on the surveys is. Mm-hmm. Um, they definitely remind you. Because I think... Yeah, I remember being reminded. Like for yeah. Havelina or something like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So that's like the quick overview, quick and dirty overview of all the states. And so... Because we live in Montana, yep. that's the one that I'm, like, most familiar with. And, like, for years, I've, I feel like I've been frustrated with the phone surveys. And I think a lot of hunters are also frustrated. I'd be curious if everyone else's thoughts yes. are on this. Yes. Yes. Okay. So. Jace? <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Marcus? Yeah. Yes. yes. Unanimous. Are you going to tell them how they do it? Yeah. So, and then, and this is the thing. I couldn't actually find, I should have asked for it as I have been emailing back and forth with some people, um, the actual uh, order of questions and which questions are asked in each survey. And I couldn't find, like, that exact protocol. But generally, like, the number one thing that they're after when they call you is if you killed something, yes or no, and if you did, which unit did you kill it in? And how many days? Yeah, and but that's separate. Oh. Okay. And so that was what I got corrected <laughs> on because I – could have swore and this is part of the frustration with this survey is like i could have swore that they would ask you your hunter effort yes relative to your license either and you so, and i are having the same false dream or they really do it so but from what i understood when he when i was emailing back and forth and i was trying to understand this and so i believe they're trying to have hunter effort as a separate metric so, like, for still for species, so if I have a cow elk tag and then also my general elk tag, they want to know how many days I hunted elk. Not, like, because that's what, it's very hard. This is, like, okay, this is why Montana is so complicated. Uh, like, I'll use my uh, example from last year. Yeah. So, I have, I buy a general elk tag. So, I have my general elk tag, which is good for half of the state, essentially. Yeah. And then also I drew a special permit. The special permit allows me to use that general elk tag to hunt in a specific unit, but only in archery season. As right. soon as archery season is over, then that general tag reverts to be good, being good for the half of the state again. But also I can have a cow elk tag at the same time, which is good for a different subset of units. And so I could kill two elk in Montana, but depending on the time of the year and where you're at, they're good for different things. So that's why it's complicated when they're doing these surveys. Whereas in most states, you get a tag for a unit, you hunt that unit. So it is like, I'll give them credit there. It is much more complicated in Montana. That being said, I okay, we'll go, we'll go through a few more things here. But um, it's just, I did learn a lot. I learned a lot, and there is a lot of reasons for them doing the way the th- doing things the way that they do. And there's a lot of reasons why they shouldn't. Okay, yeah. well, and we'll get into that as well. Um, okay, so let's uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm curious what your experiences have been, phone survey-wise. Yeah, they call you at the most inopportune times. Very inopportune. You're, you know, driving home from work, and you get this, in the past couple years, it's been different, but, like, you get this random number, and you're like, I'm not answering this. I mean, I don't ever answer a phone call from somebody that I don't have on my caller ID. And then you're, you know, if you do answer, you got questions to answer that are, like, very specific like, I can't remember how many days I spent in this region, that region, this, that. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to, like, calculate the amount of days you've hunted, like, just off the top of your head. Right. Like, there's ways that I could do it. I would have to sit down, you know, think about this weekend, go through my photos, see what I was doing. Um, and not only that, if you spend a lot of time in the fall, you're hunting, you could be hunting all over the place. And then you're trying to think of all the places. It's just... Yeah, on the yeah. spot like that, you're you're kind of your mind's all running all over the place, and then you get off the phone, and you're like, "Oh shoot, I think I totally just told them the wrong info or something like that." Yeah, yeah. Cool. I mean, I I did my survey in the office this year, and like they caught me. So this was different this year because somebody called me, left a message, and said I could call them back at this number. So that was like the first year that that's ever happened because they oh, really? they. Uh, in prior years, they're like, yeah, this is the last time we're going to call you. Is like, well, we'll that call you again. Part of the protocol, I remember, is they, they call each person three times, and if you don't answer those three times, then you're done. Yeah. Like, you can't call back. You can't. There's no There's no number you can call yeah. to report. There's no website you can report on. It's all ba- – and that's part of their random sample, in theory, to have, like – I mean, this, there's a lot of statistics and a lot of things that are over my head on the reasoning why they have to <laughs> – keep the sampling consistent but well, then you were saying this yeah. year they allowed you to call back yeah yes. which was last new. year they gave me a number too the guy's like hey it's jack here's my number call me back so we played phone tag all summer long yeah, yeah. finally he gave up or i gave up i don't know which <laughs> so yeah they gave me a number to call him back at so yeah. that's like a step in the right direction i guess because like previous to that it was like <laughs> so, you're done yeah if, if you miss those three calls and so they I did get, I read through like an entire research paper and there is a lot of reasons that they, they do the things that they do. And the, one of the big things is that it is, they argue that it is accurate enough data for managers to, to get what they need in a very cost effective approach. No, but <laughs> okay. The, yeah. <laughs> so their argument too is that they like for My issuing wife, Kim, twice has, a, Kim has a button on our table that you hit it, it says bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> we need that bullshit. The bullshit button. Yeah, it's red and white. So, <laughs> and that's I think that's my biggest uh, wonder is like how accurate is the data? Because I think if everything if if you are getting accurate answers out of each hunter, then yeah, then maybe that random subset is good enough to have a picture of what's going on in the state. Um, but is that data accurate is my biggest question. And the, the cost effective thing. So they, they did admit that like having ma- either mon- mandatory or voluntary even reporting, but then with a follow-up survey to be statistically significant, you have to have a follow-up survey in addition to that initial one, whether it's mandatory or voluntary. Mm-hmm. And so they were saying that's basically cost prohibitive to do that. Or, I mean, in the past, it has been 
extremely expensive to do that. They they did admit that is a better method than the current one. To send out a certain, like they'll call you, ask you a few questions, and then say, we're going to send you this, you know, pamphlet. No, no so, sorry, a non uh, follow-up to a non-response. So oh, okay. you send out the survey, no response. You follow up with a second, like, you know, ask to complete sure. the survey. Yeah, there's this thing called email. Yeah. Al Gore invented the internet yeah. in like 1992, okay? It's called MailChimp or Constant Contact or whatever. Yeah. Right. It, I, I get every state, I get these surveys. It's so easy to be completely accurate, like to Michael's point of, well, you, you got me on the spot here. I can't remember all the places I hunted this year. Yeah. So when it's emailed, you, you say, okay, I got to get this done today. And so you've got some time to think about it. There's no reason to hang up your email because you don't recognize the email. So you're going to fill it out. And cost-wise, they can say what they want. Every other state who does this has reached a different conclusion than Montana right. about the cost. <laughs> Maybe we have Montana currency here where we spend different dollars than all the other states. Well, I think they, Montana, I think one of their claims is that it is – they do spend some of the least amount of money on their surveys. But what about no. all the man hours that it right. takes to man the well, phones? They're, they're, count, they're counting that, I believe. And and, and, but no way. Not even <laughs> close. <laughs> that bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. I'm an accountant. You aren't going to smoke that out of me. So here's the other thing, though. All four of us said, okay, let me ask you, Jace, how confident are you that Montana's got good data? based on their harvest surveys. Not confident. Marcus, before you did all this research, how confident were you? I was not confident, but... Michael? <laughs> yeah, 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 not confident. Okay. <laughs> One of the biggest parts of this confidence level, because they like to say, well, we know these are the numbers within some 90% confidence level. If you have 0% confidence level among four really avid hunters in yeah. Montana, that's more important. If the public doesn't trust what you're right. doing, if the public doesn't yeah. trust that you are using the best tools available, they're going to hit that bullshit meter all day long. Right. Well, and I think that's like brings up an interesting point too, because one of the reasons that, that I feel like there's been pushback against instituting mandatory reporting is to maintain a positive image amongst hunters. I, I mean, you want to be like, you don't want to punish the hunters wanna, yeah. for an. Anyway, I just, yeah. Um, so there, there were some states that used to provide incentives to report. It wasn't mandatory, right. but we will provide an incentive. You know, like if everyone who uh, answers their elk survey, guess what? You're in the drawing for a Missouri yeah, breaks so or an elk. Wyoming, yeah. Wyoming does that. And okay. so that was like one of my big things. And what I asked, like, why can't we incentivize reporting? Mm -hmm. It is illegal in Montana. Okay, let's get the law changed. Yeah, yeah. So that's like the big thing that needs to happen. Yeah. So it's Ill, it's illegal to incentivize in any way. Yeah. So you can't offer raffles. You can't yeah. offer the, the, a bonus points. That's so like, frustrating. It's like saying, well, I left my lug wrench at home, so I'm going to drive around on a flat tire the rest of my life because <laughs> I forgot the lug wrench. Solve the problem. Yeah. Okay, go to the legislature. The legislature goes to the FWP every year and says, do you have a bill? that you? What's your list of things you want corrected? Yeah, I'll carry the bill. So, I'll, I'll find I can find five senators tomorrow who would carry that bill to fix that. Well, so I think here's the thing, though. I I believe that the commission last year, I, and I'm not exactly sure. I have I couldn't find the instance when this happened, but 
I was told that mandatory reporting is going to happen. So Montana is going to institute some form of mandatory reporting. Cool. And it's just how it's going to look, we don't know yet. And so I feel like this is an opportunity to, like, hopefully have a say in, like, how it's going to look. Hopefully. Unfortunately, unless – I love the idea of, like, incentivizing it somehow instead of, like, like just punishing hunters. But, I mean, the punishment needs to be there too. And so, like, you look at, okay, whatever Utah's doing – and I don't know, maybe Utah's different because people are so attached to those controlled hunts and, like, being able to draw a tag where Montana – you you know you have your general elk tag every year so you might take it for granted a little more but um just look at the examples of these other states that have high compliance rates and have this high quality data and then like how do we institute that as we move towards mandatory reporting yeah i don't understand how it it couldn't be possible with like the app now right you have that That was i i really tried to suss that out as well so Expect, like if you log on to my FWP, not even not necessarily the app. So the app, I guess, yeah, sure, they're working out glitches in the app. But on the online portal, my FWP, you log on to it. There is reporting on it right now for the mandatory species. So if you like a mountain lion, a bighorn sheep, a bobcat, any of those species, I mean, there's a bunch of mandatory species. You can go on and you click through it, and it and a different survey for each species drops down. But apparently they've been they've been wanting to do mandate or not mandatory voluntary reporting for the last eight years. They've been trying to institute voluntary reporting for the last eight years, but because of the complication of all of everybody having multiple licenses, of having all these deer B tags, oh, somehow sure. it gets complicated. <laughs> and that's why I was really trying to understand this, but they said it's extremely complicated to get at hunter harvest or hunter effort in the same series of surveys as it is but here's my well okay so then i feel like the um whoever's conducting the phone surveys has a series of questions like how hard is it to have me go through those exact same series of questions and okay the other argument that they also were telling me that so often hunters don't know where they were they cannot (laughs) recall the unit in which they were hunting in which i'll be honest i've been that person because sometimes you, you, you're on the phone and you can't like, right. okay, I know it, I, but I don't have the map in front of me. Yeah. But on the survey, have the map, yeah. sitting next to it. And then I feel like a way higher percent of people having that visual are going to be able to like, oh, yeah, you know, I know I was in X district. But, but that, that's no excuse against online reporting. Because a lot of these people aren't going to know that whether you, it's a phone survey like they currently do or if they don't know where the hell they're hunting. They probably don't know that when they're doing it online either. So the, right. the same, it transfers from one reporting method to the other. So that's a... Well, I think that, that and again, I, I'm devil's advocate here, their argument would be like, well, that surveyor is able to uh, reference the map and say, okay, well, were you north of Bozeman? Were you northwest of Bozeman? And then, they, and then they're like, oh, yeah. And then so like, okay, you were in HD. I had an experience but, where I told them where I was, and I was naming... A, um, an area, it wasn't the exact unit, but the person taking the survey, they had no idea where I was talking about, and they had to pull up maps right. to, like, and I had to guide them to where I was trying yeah. to tell no, them. And that's, and that's my, and, and so I think it leads to... A, <laughs> it was just strange. <laughs> but you got, yeah. did you guys, so you think they got it figured out? Yeah, I, to, we finally it. nailed it down, but okay. it, I was like, I had to do a lot of... 
But you were lucky that you had a map at your disposal. Yeah, and, I like, had to pull out my phone and like and had the level of care to try to give them good data. You weren't driving yeah. home from after work, you know, like every yeah. other state. <laughs> When it shows up online in your account that you have this tag and you have that tag and you have that tag, you got to click on it and it takes you to the survey. Right. So if my FWP account says I have a doe tag, a buck tag, a, a bull tag, a cow tag, hopefully a sheep tag someday. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're in my account. Right. All it has to do is boom, go here, answer these questions. Right. And then there's a separate section for hunter effort. Yeah. And however that needs to be set up. And I, and I get that, like, so the other thing is when you do voluntary reporting, you bias towards successful hunters because there was research that supported that because if you are just voluntary, like if you're not incentivized in some fashion, you, you bias towards successful hunters because you're more likely to submit like, Hey, I want to, I want to submit my data versus someone who's like, I hunted two days this year. I didn't get out. Like, I don't feel this need to like submit my data, okay. but that. that data yeah. point, but for hunter effort and for success rates and just understanding the big picture, we still need those, those data points of unsuccessful hunters. Right. And so trying to get an actual subset of like all hunters, I think that's where it becomes difficult with voluntary reporting, but I feel like, I don't know. I feel like having that data of, voluntary reporting or mandatory, whatever, is still super valuable because I think the most important number is how many animals were killed. So yep. even if you are by, like, how many animals were killed in each unit, and I'm sure there's some complex statistics that have to happen to, like, suss out if you're biasing towards that or not. But I imagine, like, even of the voluntary reported sample, you can still do your random subset and try to get all those follow-up responses of the non non-submitters uh, or non-respondents of the survey. I don't know. It, it is it is more complicated than I thought, I'll admit, but it is, it's frustrating. Um, Have you ever heard of the term institutional inertia? That's above my head there. Well, what that means is, <laughs> well, that's how we've always done it. So that's how we're going gotcha. to do it. If you, if FWP put out a $50,000 grant, you could get two MSU IT students, one MSU fish and game student, and one MSU human dynamics, human behavior student, and they would have this problem <laughs> solved by their sophomore year for yeah. fifty thousand bucks. Yeah, no, I I think you're not too far off there. Um, one other fun thing I got to touch on. We're over our time, oh. by ways, but I don't care. Um, so the thing that I found really interesting looking at harvest estimates. So like they, what they do with this, this data is they make the harvest estimates for each unit and you know, you can pull up the spreadsheets, it's all public info. So in one of the most popular mule deer units in Montana, probably one of the most sought after tags, mm-hmm. they only give out like 45 permits every year for mule deer bucks. And then in 2021, it's the harvest estimate said that they killed 70 mule deer bucks in that unit. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. And this sign. isn't, and I, I don't want to, I don't want it to seem like I'm cherry picking data. So I found multiple instances right. of this and either we have a huge poaching problem or these harvest estimates, at least in these lower quota units are not accurate. Right. Well, they have harvest estimates in some units that I'm, I'm going to use an example in, in region two where they say, we think the herd is 300 elk and there's, you know, 80 bulls there. And then their harvest estimate says, Oh, we shot 90 bulls. Yeah. Hello. 
Come on. I mean, it's just interesting. Like, there's just looking through the numbers, there were some that seemed surprising or in, potentially inaccurate. In this, to this culminate all this, Montana is the only state in the Rockies that has it figured out of how phone surveys, playing phone tag with everybody, is less expensive, more effective, and not worth changing to technology. We've got it figured out, and everyone else is wrong. I don't know if they'd go that far, but it's it's definitely every other state I've hunted in and had to complete a harvest survey. It has been a more enjoyable experience than Montana, and I think yes. that's the moral of the story for me. Right. And I think hunter satisfaction should be a valuable thing that state agencies consider. Look at New Mexico's hunter satisfaction ones; they're online. You yeah. want to see what unit to apply for? Go look at the hunter satisfaction surveys, and they break it out by resident and non-resident. Public land and private yeah. land. I think our cameras are about to stop rolling. All right. I better shut up. Sorry. Oh, no. Well, well we can keep going. If it's we... important. This, I mean, like, the reason why we're all fired up about it is because this survey stuff is, you know, it's important. Well, I think we we have a desire to, like, we submit high-quality data. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing, too, is it's like I feel like I've never actually submitted perfectly accurate data to a um, phone survey. Because I just haven't had the time. You're on the spot. You're not prepared. And I and I have prepared in the past. Like, I have literally, like, written things down. But, like, oh. I've, I've, like, knowing what the questions are likely to be. And then either I don't get called or I'm not at my computer or don't have my piece of paper that I wrote stuff down on. Like, I've started to put it in my phone. And then I'll be trying to pull it. Up. It's just, like, so I, like, but how many people are going through that level of effort as well to try to provide that data? Yeah. I don't know. This so, camera's about to die. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Anyway, <laughs> if, I guess we'll if, wrap it up. If hunters aren't confident in the data, it doesn't matter how confident the agency is in the data. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. We're fired up on this one. Yeah, it's good times. <laughs> Have a See good See you guys one. later. See you.